We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the island of Tasmania. We cover all things STEM, science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. The show is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about what they're doing. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host, Ollie Dove. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people. As we record on Lutruwita, I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Today we'll be taking a dive into the world of hydrology and working with water with our expert guest, Alice Hines. So, Ollie, this sounds really interesting, and I like that you always bring a little bit of uh, watery flair to our episodes. So, what are we going to be talking about, and tell us a little bit more about our guest. Thanks so much, Neve, and thanks so much for coming in today, Alice. Now, you are currently working as a professional engineer specialising in hydrology and hydraulics, and you spend a lot of your time thinking about how rainfall and runoff might interact with people and the environment. But to kick us off today, can you explain what hydrology and hydraulics actually mean? Of course. Um, Hydrology and hydraulics um, is a field of, well, I'm an engineer, so a field of engineering and science. Uh, Hydrology is typically around uh, rainfall and how rainfall uh, turns into runoff and turns into the water that you see in a river, stream, um, and potentially turns into a flood. And hydraulics is how that water moves through uh, systems. So it's about the physics of um, how gravity affects water, how how water moves across different surfaces, um, and how yeah how water interacts with um, physical and other um, aspects of the environment and the world. Can I ask a really obvious question? Actually, yes. is runoff different? Is that is runoff like when it goes through fields and stuff, or is runoff like the same as just when it makes its way to a stream and then downstream? Yeah, yeah. So runoff is kind of uh, what happens to rain after it touches the ground. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess rainfall and. Uh, meteorology is kind of um, a separate sort of field, but hydrology is kind of about how the rain falls and where it falls and how it gets to its end destination, which might be a dam or a river or the ocean. Cool. I've always wondered that. So thank you very much, Alice. So how does hydrology affect our day-to-day lives? Yeah. So, I mean, we live in a world that rain rainfall happens happens when it happens. Um, so I guess every day when you're moving through the world, um, you might be driving, you might be living in your home, um, rainfall can interact with any of those things. So um, basically any, any part of your life needs to be designed and considered with respect to how rainfall will, um, I guess, sort of interact within that. So when you're looking, I mean, it can be as simple as when you look at your home, you'll have gutters along your roof to direct any runoff down a downpipe so that, um, yeah, you're directing it into a stormwater pipe or something like that and then out away from your home so that you don't end up with puddles and flooding in your backyard. Um, On the streets, when you're driving around, you might see stormwater drains. Um, That's how rainfall and runoff are managed. Um, 
to make sure that our roads can be trafficable, um, even when it's been raining. Um, and then it gets bigger, you know. Um, in a city like Brisbane, you have the big Wyvernhoe Dam, which is mitigating big rainfall events that happen in that catchment and meaning that the whole city of Brisbane doesn't go underwater. So, yeah, it's it's uh, hydrology is it's part of the world so um and water and rain and rainfall and runoff so yeah we have to figure out a way to live harmoniously with that (laughs) yeah in my head it it would sort of be someone designed thinking about the gutter on top of a house sort of someone designed it and it works perfectly forevermore but is it possible to have sort of scales of sometimes there are gutters that are better designed or it depends on the shape of the house sort of thing yeah I mean I've probably I've never like done any design of that kind of stuff, but certainly when it comes to stormwater management systems, yeah, you you ultimately have to just talk to I guess, and this is part of my job is engaging with councils in the community. What do you want to achieve? Do you want there to never ever be any chance that there'll be a puddle, or are you okay with having a puddle there four or five times a year? Um, do you want this? Does this road need to be open every day without fail, like major highways? Or is it okay if this road is flooded for a few hours after a big rainfall event? So maybe a minor road or something like that. Um, And there's lots of considerations that come into that. Um, Is there other ways to access a location? Is this road the only way you can get from A to B? Um, Yeah, so, and then that informs how you would go on and design that system. So that goes, if you need to, if you, yeah, if you only need to, um, if you're happy with, just puddles every now and then, then maybe you'll just put a small pipe in um, that, you know, takes a bit of time, but eventually everything will drain away. Um, and that, that would inform that design. But if you're, if you're looking at a major highway um, and you have a, quite a high criteria, that would inform, you might need massive pipes, you might need different grades and you might need to design your road so that water will fall um, off the side of the road into the gutter into the drain that you've designed so it gets more complicated the harder the more um, more resilient you want your infrastructure to be. So Alice when does something like hydrology come into the piece of designing a new project so like let's say we're going to put some new roads in or a new community centre or something and when we're picking the location of that I'm imagining that it can vary quite a lot depending on like how marshy is the place or how much rainfall does that place have what natural clearing opportunities are there around so when usually does someone with hydrology experience or expertise come into the piece to be like uh I wouldn't put it there I'd put it 100 meters over here um as part of you know that kind of cost mitigation and future planning um so as a person who works in that field I would like to say at the very start (laughs) when you're choosing somewhere to build something you know there's a whole range of people who think that their issue is the most important issue so um being my background, I think it should be one of the first things you can cons- you should consider. And if I was ever building a home myself, it'd be one of the first things I would consider. But um, obviously, that's not always the case. Part of like a big part of what we do is making sure councils understand how flooding works within their local area. So you don't necessarily need an expert if you already have a good idea of what kind of locations are more likely to flood, and that kind of helps with. Um, deciding where a development might go. Um, and then, yeah, as if, if say, you've got this plot of land and you think this is great for a development, um, it's not prone to river and flooding or anything like that. 
you're still changing how the land works. You might it might be a grassy land. You're going to put a bunch of roads in there, so it's going to change how um, rainfall interacts. So we're like as like a person like me, a uh, hydrology hydraulics engineer, will be involved in designing the stormwater drainage system, probably from pretty early on. Um, certainly before the houses get designed and sold and built or anything like that. Yeah. Thanks, Alice. And stay with us, listeners, for part two as we swim further into why water management is crucial for public life. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are taking a dive into hydrology. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm do- joined by Dr. Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Alice Hines. Now, we've touched on hydrology in everyday settings, um, but just to continue that, my dad, growing up, he would always moan about how everyone in our road as soon as they got a second car, they would pave over their front garden. And he would say about how horrible it was because it's just going to sort of ruin the ability of our road to take in rainfall and things. Does it have, or does the urbanisation, expansion of cities, people becoming more and more pavement-based as opposed to grass-based in their houses, does that have a big impact on local ability for the hydraulics? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, As we sort of mentioned before, when you change um, the land use from something that's more natural, even like even grass, which is, I don't know if that you would consider that to be supernatural or not, but um, if you change from something that can absorb water um, with soils and um, plant life in it to something that's completely solid and impervious, so water can't soak through it, you increase the amount of runoff that's generated during a given rainfall event, which kind of makes sense if... You can if fifty percent of your rainfall gets infiltrated into a soil base, in the same rainfall event, if you turn that um, if you turn that natural landscape into something like concrete, you'll have fifty percent more runoff. That's just an example. Um, so yeah, the more we put concrete, pavement, solid surfaces into our cities, the more that catchment will generate more runoff for a given rainfall event. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. There's a lot more, um, it's an interesting space to work in. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot more, um, innovative ways that people are starting to look at, um, urban development, looking at putting more green spaces in to mitigate, um, flood risks, just even in small rainfall events, just being able to, um, yeah, mitigate the impacts that is caused by urbanization. Yeah. And then flipping that from the other point of view, so that's how you deal with more water. How does water supply to domestic and industrial buildings actually work? Like, how do we turn rain into something useful? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) Um, So I guess I work in the top end of that. So there's a lot that goes into getting water from a cloud into um, your taps. So I have worked as a hydrology and hydraulics engineer um, in looking at um, the yield of our water storage dams and stuff like that. Um, So that we, you know, that's about making sure that our dams have enough water 
to supply our population. Speaking of dams, though, can yep. a dam fail? Like, is it possible? <laughs> and is it, would it be like when you see in a film and it's catastrophic and it wipes out a town sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it would be if yep. it did. And certainly, um, yeah, dams can absolutely fail. Um, that's why it's really, really important um, to make sure that they're well maintained and well monitored. Um, something that I guess I look at in my job is risk assessing um, large structures like large dams and looking at what could happen if they failed. So that's a big part of my hydraulics work is um, if a large dam were to fail and all that water um, went out into the river, it's probably almost, depending on the size of the structure, might result in fairly significant flooding downstream might result in um, taking out homes or roads or infrastructure. Um, and that impact that that we look at in the hydraulic space, that helps to inform the people who own dams, um, like what um, level of maintenance and what level of safety they need to be putting into those structures. So um, something with a higher consequence of failure needs to have much higher um, resilience towards failing. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that if something's going to have a really bad impact, like catastrophic levels, yeah. then we're going to invest quite a lot of money to make sure it doesn't fail. How does something like, you know, many of us in Tasmania, particularly in Hobart, would remember the really intense flooding we had a couple of years ago? Yeah, 2016. Yep. Gosh, is that 2016? <laughs> but like, that seemed to kind of catch a lot of people off guard. I know I certainly was. Um, but it was really intense. How does that factor into, you know, you make models or decisions based on um, the data that you have available, but w what about these one-off kind of fairly intensive events? Do they kind of throw a spanner in the works for your planning and way you management things? Or is it kind of like you've built it robust enough that it's kind of by the by we expect these one-off random heavy flooding events? That's a really good question because um, as I guess in the field of hydrology and hydraulics, when you're designing infrastructure, you normally do want to design stuff to a really high level of safety, like one in a thousand year event or higher. But communicating that with, um, I guess, asset owners, particularly um, not so much like your big corporations, but your small councils, your homeowners, stuff like that. It's not a one in a thousand event. It doesn't mean much to you. And even like maybe one in a hundred. Um, and I'm not sure what what the 2016 event was. I think in some locations it was almost a one in a hundred event. Um, and yeah, so when you're designing, you might set like we might be saying, we really recommend that you go and design for this because that is like a one in a hundred event could happen in the next hundred years. And that might be your the life of your asset. But... Um, that's hard to picture for someone who's lived, you know, you might have lived in Tasmania your whole life and never seen a flood like 2016. And then I think the really, I mean, it's, it's, it's awful that a flood like that would happen and cause, like you said, I mean, I wasn't here, but it was quite intense and there was a lot of damage um, as a result. Um, but that really kind of helps um, to give 
at least a basis moving forward is like people who have lived through that, then now they want to say like, I want my house to at least be fine if we had that same thing that happened in 2016. So that kind of, it doesn't help, but like for, for it makes things more tangible. Mm. So I can then run the 2016 flood model and say, okay, you want to be good in t- at 2016 event. I know that's about a one in hundred event. We'll need to do this infrastructure to protect you. Um, and yeah, it, it does help. Um, obviously it's a, it's a, it's an awful thing to have to happen, but it does help people understand yeah, the risks in, a bit more. Because yeah, if you haven't, like if you've been memory. in a drought too, yeah. it's hard for you to be like, well, I don't want to spend a bunch of money protecting myself against a flood. It hasn't rained in 10 years. So, yeah. But anything can happen. Climate is a cycle. Mm-hmm. So you'll often have a long dry period followed by a lot of floods. And then touching on climate, how does climate change come into the picture when we're thinking about designing how we catch and use water? Yeah, so climate change is a really interesting space. And in my work at the moment, it's something that people are asking us a lot about. They want to protect their town against flooding, but they're not sure how flooding will change as the climate changes. And the same with water supply. We want to make sure we have water for our communities, but how's rainfall going to change in the next hundred years? Um, so I guess it goes both ways. Um, the risk with flooding is that you might get more rainfall um, and have a bigger flood. And then the opposite with water supply is the risk is you might have a longer drought and might you might have less water. Um, so those are things that we now are very much considering when it comes to design of new and existing infrastructure. Um, and there's there's so much modelling out there. I'm sure you guys have spoken to people about climate change before, but it's quite uncertain about what's going to happen. So we just have to um, take the best estimates and and see and try and, um, try and design things that we think will be resilient. As you talked a little bit about drought as well that you've touched on a couple of times. How does drought change like the earth or the ground's ability to deal with runoff? Because I've read some things that drought-prone areas, then if they experience heavy rainfall, are actually really high flooding hazards because the ground is so unable to actually absorb and cope with that water. Yeah, that's definitely something that's been observed. Um I probably don't know enough about the science of soils to really comment on it. But yeah, that's certainly something I've heard as well, particularly in, I guess, UK, like areas like Western Queensland where it'll be dry for years and then they'll get 400 millimetres over a week or something. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I don't know, but <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks heaps, Alice. So uh, stick with us when, as we unpack Alice's experiences in hydrology engineering as a woman and explore why there aren't many women in the field. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. And today we're talking about hydrology. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by Dr. Neve Chapman along with our expert guest, Alice Hines. Now, Alice, you've had a great career already with working in different cities and states for different departments or organisations. And you've gone all the way from engineering student to now professional engineer. 
And it's a common trend in STEM. And we see, especially in engineering, that a lot of women graduate, but there's fewer women each level you go up in academia or industry. From your experience, why do you think the retention rate would be so low for women engineers? Yeah, I guess I can only speak to my experience. Um, And um, I guess it comes from a few things. So from what I've observed, um, but the the biggest one and, and I guess the core of all that kind of stuff is around the culture of engineering. Um, engineering, much like, I guess, law and medicine, is a really old profession and historically um, a very male-dominated profession. Um, and what, what we see is, yeah, a lot of, lot of girls coming out of uni, um, getting jobs as graduate engineers, and just not just experiencing um, a culture that doesn't show them that they can succeed and doesn't demonstrate that women can stay within the career and have all the things that they might want as a woman. Um, and one of the one of the things that I personally find very frustrating is that I look at all of the senior men that I've worked with in the last five years and they're all able to have um, children and a family and a career and be successful. Um, And I've, from my observation, um, women who decide that they want to have a family, um, it's it's a lot harder. It's just not as accessible. Um, the, The concessions that they might want or need to support their lifestyle aren't made available and aren't supported by the industry. Um, yeah, something so like that. So, do you like think it's um, more like? Do you think it's kind of two prong where there's not many people who are stuck around, so therefore they're not visible role models, but they all also haven't like been there to visibly challenge the status quo, or do you think it is more of a like structural? societal expectation that women are still carers and they're still going to take leave and that well oh well if you want to take leave then unfortunately you're not going to get the track record or the experience or the big projects because you're not here and you need to go when you need to go and all that kind of stuff so do you think like I find it um family responsibilities are obviously such a such an important part of society's expectation of women but that we really don't have infrastructure or policies in place that accommodate that in the workplace um and it sounds like that's kind of similar to what you've experienced where it's just like well just the nature of that isn't really supported yeah it's it's not easy is what it is it's difficult and when things are difficult you get less people who want to persevere and more people who are in that position where it's it could be quite hard to continue um and you you might kind of feel like you're fighting an uphill battle uh, the easier route might be to change careers yeah and I think that's what a lot of people do and you know like even even 20 years ago there was so many women doing engineering at university not of course not as many not as many women as men but even even 10 percent if if all if there was 10 percent graduating which I think I think that's about right 
um, there's definitely not 10% of senior specialist engineers are women. Mm. Definitely not. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah, it's an interesting issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really tricky to unpack for sure. Do you think industry organisations are aware and are actively trying to help it or it's not something that's – if that's just how it's always been and it's sort of working, they don't really have much drive to challenge it or do you think some organisations actually now are taking it into account? Yeah, it's like certainly it varies organisation to organisation and you see a lot of different um, approaches um, and – and mix mixes of success. Like I've worked in organisations where there's there's no senior women, and it's quite obvious why. And then I've worked in other organisations where there are, and again, it's quite obvious why. It's obvious that the organisation that's what they want. They want to see like a diverse range of people in leadership roles because that gives them better ideas, better innovations people coming at things from different approaches as opposed to a whole bunch of people who have the same experiences the same history the same approach to solving a problem um if you have a diverse range of people you get better solutions for your organization for your clients um and I think organizations that recognize that those are the ones that are really trying the hardest to make sure that they're creating an environment that will encourage that um that diversity in in leadership thanks so much Alice I think you've raised like a really important point there and it's also awesome to see from industry that you can recognize when someone's put in place like the policies and practices that are needed to support women but it does result in a change and the irony would be if we did that would actually support more diversity coming through as well as people would be visible so kudos to those doing a good job I say and <laughs> thanks heaps Alice for coming in thanks heaps to Ollie for organizing today's episode and thank you for listening to that's what I call science wherever you are in Australia or if you're listening on demand if you enjoyed the show please do let us know on the um that's what I call science on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Until next time, my name's Dr. Neve Chapman. Once again, thank you to my co-host, Ollie Dove, and our expert guest, Alice Hines. Thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information. At That's What I Call Science, we love bringing engaging content to all sorts of audiences, and this includes youth. So if you're a teacher at a local school here in Tasmania and have students interested in science, technology, engineering, maths or medicine topics, then let us know and we can come into your school and get them on the radio talking about their favourite exciting scientific ideas. Listen to That's What I Call Science on Edge Radio Sundays at 5pm where you'll hear great science coming from our small island by a team of awesome women interviewing expert guests. Be sure to catch it and if you like it, follow us on your favourite social media channel.